excerpt from the uh, first oration by Marcus Tullius Cicero against Lucius Sergius Catalina. But if this man alone is removed from this piratical crew, we may appear, perhaps, for a short time relieved from fear and anxiety, but the danger will settle down and lie hid in the veins and bowels of the Republic. As it often happens that men afflicted with a severe disease, or they are tortured with heat and fever, if they drink cold water, seem at first to be relieved, but afterwards suffer more and more severely. So this disease, which is in the Republic, if relieved by the punishment of this man, will only get worse and worse, as the rest will still be alive. Wherefore, O conscript fathers, let the worthless be gone. Let them separate themselves from the good. Let them collect in one place. Let them, as I have often said before, be separated from us by a wall. Let them cease to plot against the consul in his own house, to surround the tribunal of the city praetor, to besiege the senate house with swords, to prepare brands and torches to burn the city. Let it, in short, be written on the brow of every citizen what his sentiments are about the Republic. I promise you this, O conscript fathers, that there shall be so much diligence in us the consuls, so much authority in you, so much virtue in the Roman knights, so much unanimity in all good men, that you shall see everything made plain and manifest by the departure of Catiline, everything checked and punished. With these omens, O Catiline, be gone to your impious and nefarious war. To With these omens, O Catiline, be gone to your impious and nefarious war. Uh, this is uh, from one of the most famous orations, of which there are many, by Marcus Tilius Cicero, a man who gained power in the Roman Republic uh, through his eloquence and almost was able to save it from descending into the empire, what would become the Roman dictatorial empire. So with me today I have uh, Richard Enos to discuss one of his idols, one of his favorite uh, favorites, uh, Marcus Tullius Cicero. Thank you, David, and welcome everyone. I'm really very honored to talk about Cicero, who I do respect greatly and consider one of my... Um, my idols in studying rhetoric. And I'd like today to share with you why I came to hold that belief and some of the achievements of Cicero and how those achievements were attained under great constraints. Uh, I think the best way to proceed is first, I would like to have um, a preliminary introductory uh, moment to talk about the transition from Greek which we've discussed in the last several meetings, to Roman rhetoric. So last time we left them with the Aristotle's rhetoric and the two schools of rhetoric set up with uh, Aristotle and Isocrates, yes. uh, and of course the uh, philosophic school of Plato. And then uh, afterwards, I'd like to discuss in order uh, a small amount of time for his very distinguished oratorical career as both an advocate and as a politician, but then to concentrate on his rhetorical works. And by that, I mean his theoretical works 
on rhetoric, which instantiated much of what he did as a contributor, but really established a very important view of rhetoric, a view that was slightly different than what we had talked about earlier, except that it was in great harmony with the view of Isocrates. And that is that there should be a perspective on rhetoric that is oriented toward its civic value, that it is important to study and practice rhetoric well for the benefit of the state and the community in which it exists. And I think that that perspective is a major accomplishment of Cicero, one we've grown to appreciate uh, more recently in the 20th and now the 21st century. So I'd like to spend time talking about the foundations of that point of view as well. Now, uh, the first point I would like to make is to talk about this transition from Greek to Roman rhetoric. In some ways, I think that explaining this transition is a contribution that began in the 20th century and continues now with scholars in rhetoric. And this may not seem to be a critical point because uh, in the classroom, we might say, all right, here is Greek rhetoric. And next week we will begin Roman rhetoric. But as historians of rhetoric, we should explain this transition. We should try to understand how rhetoric was introduced into Rome, why it was so uh, popular and influential, and really even also the constraints of opposition that tried to discourage the teaching of rhetoric in Rome. And so that's what I, I would like to do. I think what we can say is that in general, if I can make this generalizations, Romans always had a mixed attitude toward Greeks. On the one hand, there's no denying the tremendous intellectual contributions of the classical period of Greece. And uh, in fact, Romans would often cite and emulate and praise Greeks. On the other hand, there was this ferocious desire to establish their own Roman identity. And sometimes that was done at trying to sever any what they might have considered dependence or inferiority to the Greek contributions. Mm. So I'm not going to so, say go so far as to say it was a love-hate relationship, but it was one that was mixed. And Cicero shows that his recognition and indebtedness to the contributions of Greek thought, and especially Greek rhetoric, were a tremendous benefit toward fostering uh, the uh, welfare of the Roman Republic and the stability of his society. So we will talk about that. The large question to return to this first part is, well, how did this transition take place? Well, there are three points that I think are important to think about. One we could say, well, people such as Cicero, Romans of means, could simply, and did, as Cicero did, go to Greece and study and be exposed to Greek rhetoric. 
Cicero, in fact, did this from 79 to 77 BCE, where he studied in Athens, Rhodes, and then he says in his Brutus Asia Minor, which is several different sites for the study of rhetoric, which I'm on a side note researching right now. <laughs> but uh, it would be hard to think that just as if of having a few, relatively few people go to Greece and actually study would be the reason why there was this transition. I think it contributed to it. But what were the other forces? Well, we know that that Greece and Rome enjoyed a uh, relationship. And oddly enough, that relationship was probably initiated, but certainly fostered at the early stage by a third party. And that is the Etruscan civilization. Mm. Etruscans were very experienced in commerce and had very strong interactions throughout the world at their time, the world they knew at their time, but especially Greece. And they adopted many of the practices of Greece into their own culture. Now, the Etruscans ruled Rome, and much of central and northern Italy, and even to some degree to the south, for several hundred years. In fact, in roughly 509 BCE, the Romans marked the overthrowing of the last Etruscan king out of Rome, Tarquin the Proud, or, you know, to, as the uh, beginning of their own Roman Republic. This was done by an ancestor, led by an ancestor of Brutus's, and it was a great source of pride. Livy's monumental history on the founding of Rome, Ab Orbe Condita, documents this. So we know that the second feature, in addition to people, Romans just going to Greece, was the strong interaction that was facilitated early on by Etruscans and then perpetuated by Romans themselves with Greece. Now the third area, and this is the area that I think is very influential, is that the southern part of Italy was uh, had many cities that were uh, founded as Greek colonies. Not In other Greek, words, yeah. yes, Greek cities established colonies. Athens came late to the scene, but cities such as Corinth were uh, very, very, very powerful in establishing cities. In fact, if we think of Naples, and we think of Na or Napoli, and we think of the Greek words nea, polis, mm. new, new city, city, the new city, we will begin to see that now. It's like New, Cicero, new York and New Jersey and <laughs> exactly New Amsterdam, America. If 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 we think of what happened in America. We can begin to see that, and even the desire to establish their own identity, Americans, is not unsimilar to what was going on. Mm. Cicero once commented that in terms of the impact of Greek thought and Greek literature onto Rome, he said it's no small river that trickles its way into, into Rome, but a mighty flood that sweeps through mm. our city. And he was trying to show the impact. Now, very influential Romans, patricians, 
were concerned about this. And there were even edicts to try respectively to not teach rhetoric at all. <laughs> and, oh, and then not have rhetoric taught by Greek rhetoricians that it had to be done if it was done by Latin or Roman rhetoricians. But all of these were overcome, I think, for the simple reason that the benefits of Rome, of rhetoric in, at Rome, were so popular, so evident that um, it couldn't be detoured. And then it became assimilated to the point, as we'll discuss in our next meeting, that rhetoric became instantiated as a feature of education in Roman culture, one of the basis for Hellenistic education, and then the classical tradition that would go on through the te through teaching and education in Europe. Mm. Now, um, the second point I would like to mention is how how did this become manifest in Cicero's own career? Well, Cicero was born in approximately 106 BCE, and he was assassinated um, in 43 BC. In fact, just this month um, was the period where Cicero was assassinated on December 7th. So it's always a very close time for me when I think get to that date. But um, what happened was that Cicero was not born into a situation or made man manifest talents that normally led to great success in Roman society. He came from the equestrian rank, which was the rank of wealthy knights, as you might remember hearing in the, uh, the, the, the story of the, of the Catalan oration that was played. Uh, and he lived about, he was a Roman citizen, of course, but he lived about 60 miles or so away from Rome, born in Arpinum. So he didn't have the long patrician heritage that, let's say, to go a little bit into the future, that Augustus, Octavius, could claim. Mm. He wasn't where, one of the, the big patrician families. Yes, where their families or Brutus's were long-standing heroes of the Republic. And in fact, Augustus's lineage, the Julio-Claudian line, was claimed by Livy, some assert, and I think accurately, as a kind of almost point of propaganda in favor of Augustus, that their family goes back to the very origins of the Roman Republic. So uh, Cicero didn't have these. You can see the daughters of the Mayflower kind of thing. Exactly. Yes, <laughs> that they were, they had this tremendous legacy. Cicero did not have that legacy. Mm. Not only that, he didn't have the tremendous wealth where some Romans, such as Crassus, the, the ancestor of the dialogue character in De Oratori, had not only their own army, they had their own fire departments, they had their own, they minted their own coins. Cicero had means, but he wasn't fabulously wealthy. Could we say around like middle class? Um, so yeah, between I think the Cicero patricians and the plebeians? Kind of upper middle class. Yeah. Upper and 
And, and those Romans were at the time admitted into the Senate that there were, it wasn't just, but there was always tension right. between the very wealthy and privileged and the up and comers, the upstarts. The newly rich. <laughs> and, yeah, and then the last traditional source of power was military brilliance. Pompey was uh, uh, an imperator, which was a title informally given by his soldiers, a great honor very early in his life. Julius Caesar became uh, incredibly wealthy, powerful, and virtually challenged the, everything about the Roman Republic's society and political systems because of his brilliance as a general. Mm. But to a certain degree, and I'm not saying that it matched those three traditional sources of power, Cicero established a fourth source of power, and that is his ability in rhetoric. Now, you might say, well, how how would that be? Well, Cicero is commonly regarded as one of the great advocates or lawyers of, uh, of our history. In fact, if you go to Rome today in the hall, in front of the hall of justice, you will find his statue. And what happened is that in the Roman Republic, and this is different than what we talked about in ancient Athens so many years earlier, Romans could have advocates speak on their behalf. And Cicero was brilliant at this. As a defender or prosecutor. Yes. And initially, uh, he started as one of his most famous cases, the prosecution of Gaius Verus, who was governor of Sicily. Now, Romans thought, certainly Cicero thought, that the more noble task, all things considered, was to be a defense advocate rather than an an attacking prosecutor. You don't want to create enemies. Yes, and Cicero certainly did throughout his career create many enemies. But what happened is that he argued that that, that what the atrocities that Varus committed as governor of Sicily made him more the defense of the Sicilians in his prosecution. It was a very clever argument. This catapulted him to some notoriety and the rest of his career, we see that the orations that he has in the courts were defense orations. And they are brilliant. They are so brilliant, in fact, that just as we have with his uh, political orations, such as the Catalinarian orations, they, in effect, became literature. In other words, they transcended the arguments of the particular case and the moment, and they went on to become a point of literature which was read by not only individuals who wanted to become advocates, but as a part of the public knowledge of the Roman culture. Just as, for example, in America, we would say that was the, that it was the case with Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, or President Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, yeah, or Winston Churchill's Blood, Sweat, Tears, and Toil, 
finest hour, something that's done for a certain purpose in a certain period of time, but that transcends that and becomes uh, part of the world heritage, you could say. Exactly. And it's important for people to understand that these public speeches were often greatly modified and polished and in some ways different in that respect from what was actually uttered. But this wasn't uncommon. They corrected the mistakes. And And so afterwards people would be like, wow, did you hear that speech? It it was legendary. And then probably would some of it would be published or people would have notes of it. Perhaps he would publish some of it so that everyone could read and see for themselves the, the arguments he had again, he had in defense of this person or so. Right. It's, it took what was normally a fleeting momentary utterance in the court and it stabilized that utterance, froze it, inscribed it so that it could go on for generations and generations. And in fact, we have it today. How many do we have left of uh, have been preserved of his uh, uh, of his uh, prosecutions and oration or defense speeches? Yeah, we have. I think roughly there's about forty different speeches that we have, but in but in his writings, because remember we also had the great fortune of having uh, somewhere around eight hundred of his private letters uh, discovered. So we know more, I, I think we know more about Cicero as a person than any other individual in antiquity that we, and so we, and in those sources, he makes references to orations that we no longer have. So we have an idea of what, but we're very fortunate to have so much and we are still discovering works now. So it's a, it's a wonderful thing. I also want to mention that a person that never receives the the credit that he deserves is his secretary, Tyro. Tyro had a tremendous unique ability and developed a system of shorthand so he could go to the trial and he would record what Cicero actually said. And then of course, he would compare that with what they practiced and what Cicero wrote before the trial and then make adjustments. Tyro developed a kind of shorthand writing system that had thousands of, uh, of notation marks and symbols so that he could really keep up with an oration and transcribe it. And so you may, this, say, you may say that. Uh, yeah. So you may, might me? say with uh, without a Tyro, we wouldn't have much of Cicero. No, and I think it's important to understand this collaborative aspect, which they themselves recognized when the times when Tyro was ill and couldn't participate. Cicero would write letters of to his friend, and uh, and Tyro's method, this tachygraphy. Uh, became a very powerful source. So it would be equivalent, Let to give you an example. Suppose we were the only ones who had a computer and the rest of the world did not. And we had all the access of the internet and the rest of the world did not. Well, in some ways, although I'm sure that's overstatement, but in some ways, 
this tremendous advantage of collaboration between Tyro and Cicero gave Cicero a tremendous advantage in his rhetoric that his competitors did not enjoy. Um, Cicero just, although Tyro was a slave, in, born in, as a slave into the family, uh, he, he was given his freedom by Cicero. Cicero even gave him a farm, his own place. They were colleagues and dear friends all throughout their lives. Hmm. Um, I want to qualify. I believe Tyro was born into Cicero's family. I'm not sure, but there's, it's very clear that Tyro and Cicero were colleagues at the earliest stages of Cicero's formal career. Now, uh, I, this power that Cicero had in Roman society uh, became, came into existence because the people that he defended uh, were seen by Romans as clientele, as mm-hmm. clients. And although Cicero didn't receive a kind of a formal pay, he was given great gifts. There was patronage. And even in the wills of some of the most prominent Romans, he was named as a beneficiary. But he had this respect. He was clearly a source of power, just as we would today. It is that if we wanted a lawyer for whatever purpose, we would want the very best and appreciate what, what could be done with that lawyer. So Cicero rose to power, and in fact, he rose to the highest level of political office and became a council. The highest level, they were annual appointments, two per year. And Cicero in 63 BC was council, and it was during that time that he detected and exposed and removed the Catalinarian conspiracy that we heard in the beginning of our our podcast. Well, the third level that I'd like to talk about is the rhetorical works of Cicero. Now, um, Cicero made his political enemies. Claudius was the most uh, vicious of them. And during the changes, the waxing and waning of political powers in the Roman Republic, Claudius succeeded in having Cicero uh, exiled, his property confiscated, and Cicero had to leave Rome. He eventually was pardoned and returned and uh, actually gave a a speech, an oration on why he deserved to have his property back. Hmm. In fact, uh, people are surprised to know that out of such experiences came the expression, there is no place like home. (laughs) That is from Cicero, not from the Wizard of Oz. Well, it was popularized (laughs) by the Wizard of Oz, but that was Cicero's is there is no place like home. But uh, during um, his return, Cicero wanted to say that his career in politics was over, that he was devoting himself to writing, and he would write works on rhetoric and philosophy. Uh, he Which, wrote uh, during, the, during the exile, he was in Greece and, and studied some of that also, right? Yes, he did. And he was uh, 
convinced that his political career had run its course. Of course, we know historically that he came back and, and argued against Mark Antony and the Philippics, but he was, and he held a title of ex-council, which was a tremendously prestigious title to have in Rome. But during this time is when he wrote the majority of his works on rhetoric. That is the time after his political career and his legal career, he thought were behind him. Now it's true that as a young man, he did write a very important treatise called De Inventione on invention. He did this approximately 86 BCE. And uh, in this work, he talks about, he gives tremendous insights into the impact that Isocrates had on his thinking. Hmm. And in fact, if you read the opening passages of De Inventione, it looks like he almost copied <laughs> uh, Isocrates. This wasn't uncommon. They saw it as a sign of respect. Right, yeah. Not really plagiarism, but they, but they did that. But the majority of Cicero's works on rhetoric, which collectively are called his rhetorica. So when we mention Cicero's rhetorica, we're not talking as we would with Aristotle on a single treatise, Aristotle's rhetoric. Although we know from our last discussion, Aristotle wrote others that we don't have, except in some fragments in right. Scolia. But Cicero's rhetorica is the body of his works on rhetoric. Now, his major contribution, the one that was lost in the Middle Ages because his youthful work, De Ventione, survived. And so when medieval scholars read Cicero, they were often referring to De Ventione and only had fragments or knowledge of Cicero's monumental work, De Oratore, which was published approximately in 55 BCE. So there's almost a 30-year difference between his first work that we know of and this important one. And in this important one, the dialogue characters, Marcus Antonius, who was not Mark Antony, but the descendant who Cicero tr respected tremendously, probably as much as he hated Mark Antony. And, but, not, not descendant, and, but ancestor, right? Right, but an ancestor. Mm -hmm. And then also another ancestor, Lucius Lucinius Crassus, who was an ancestor of the Crassus, the very wealthy Crassus, that was Cicero's contemporary, are the main dialogue characters. Marcus Antonius essentially is the pragmatist and realist, the veteran soldier. Lucius Lucinius Crassus represents the refinement of Roman society highly educated, very sophisticated, a man of integrity, uh, and uh, very well respected. And in this fictitious dialogue that Cicero composed, they discuss the merits not only of higher education and training, but specifically them studying rhetoric to be effective orators and contributors of leadership in the Roman Republic. And uh, if I may just uh, quote there from uh, the beginning, yes. where he extols uh, eloquence, uh, he talks about 
first of all, it's very useful by itself. It's uh, it uh, can lead to social justice in the sense that it can raise up the afflicted, offering people safety, freeing them from danger, saving them from exile, as it had himself, right? That he should be able to come back and get his property. Uh, but let us turn to what is surely the most important point of all. What other force could have gathered the scattered member- members of the human race into one place? Mm-hmm. Or could have led them away from a savage existence in the wilderness to this truly human, communal way of life? Or once communities had been founded, could have established laws, judicial procedures, and legal arrangements? And to avoid enumerating still more points, there actually almost numberless, let me summarize everything in a few words. I assert that the leadership and wisdom of the perfect orator provide the chief basis not only of his own dignity, but also of the safety of countless individuals and of the state at large. Therefore, young man, continue your present efforts and devote all your energies to, to the pursuit you are following so that you can bring honor to yourselves, service to your friends, and benefit to the state. And I think if we understand that passage, we really understand the spirit of the oratory. Because as Isocrates tried to argue and did argue successfully, it's the uniting of wisdom and eloquence for the benefit of society at large that is the tremendous potential that that rhetoric has to contribute. And that point is not lost on Cicero. And in fact, De Oratori instantiates this idea of civic rhetoric. Now he did, Cicero did write other works on rhetoric after his return from exile. For example, he wrote the Partitiones Oratoriae. And this is good because what he does is he, he will say, well, I had a very clear view on very technical uses of rhetoric, such as in arrangements or the partitions. Uh, But now I see that it doesn't have to be that technical or difficult, but it has to be straightforward. Um, And this, I think, is an important point to make because Cicero, when he published De Oratory, was criticized by Roman intellectuals of what's called the Scipionic Circle or Roman Atticus for being too Greek-like, for not, for just uh, being too eloquent, for being too uh, flowery. flowery. And so uh, they argued that their model, an Attic model, remember Attica was the province within which Athens exists, uh, should be uh, Lysias, one of the Greek Attic orders, who was famous for a very simple and direct style. And so the Roman Atticist said, this is the style that we should have. This is the style we should use. And they criticized Cicero heavily for his capacity. Now, in, in defense, Cicero wrote other rhetorical treatises trying to show the benefits that of his perspective and his Cicero's perspective was that an individual should have a command of a range of styles. They shouldn't be locked in to a simple indirect style, but rather they should have the capacity to pick and choose the style 
that is most beneficial for the occasion or the situation, if you will. Now, he made this argument in, in different works, but the two primary works that were written as a response to the criticism that he received when he did Territory was the Brutus. Remember, Brutus was one of the critics. Cicero had a very strong and positive relationship with Brutus, but they disagreed on this. Eto Brute, that that one, yes. <laughs> the one that stabbed yes. uh, the one that stabbed Julius Caesar. Yes, Eto Brute, yeah. and you too. But but Brutus, going back to his ancestor, who we mentioned, was a champion of the Republic, and he thought that Caesar was destroying that or an arising that, tyrant. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, in the Brutus. Cicero argues that his perspective, a command, is very consistent with the history of great orators in Rome. That it's not as characterized by Brutus and his colleagues, the Roman, other Roman Atticists, but rather that, that there's a tradition of people that we have emulated as great orators who showed a range of styles. So this is a tremendous contribution to historians of rhetoric because many Romans that we would otherwise never have heard of are discussed by Cicero as a part of this history leading up to his time. The other important work, which he wrote right about at the same time, he wrote to Brutus, I'm sorry, I didn't say in about 46 BCE, but he wrote right about that time a work called The Orator, or Orator, um, which was his uh, argument for what would be the ideal speaker, what would be the ideal rhetor. And in there, he takes up an argument that he wants to justify and warrant about why he is such a... Uh, um, why he's so impressed with the uh, work of Demosthenes, the great Greek orator, because he said to his Roman Atticist critics that if you criticize Demosthenes, you're criticizing someone who showed, in, even in a single oration uh, on the crown, a range of styles and why that was so effective. And you would, and you shouldn't even call yourselves Atticists if you if you feel that Demosthenes didn't merit this because he was regarded as one of the great Attic orators in the canon of the 10 Attic orators. I mean, and in fact, Demosthenes is seen by many as the greatest orator that ever lived. Yes. And this, and, and, and believe it or not, I mean, Cicero began to be compared with Demosthenes. And, um, and shaped just, his life to a certain extent. Um, according to Demosthenes' life, I would say also, right? Yes. I mean, there is tremendous parallels that are worthy of study, uh, including the ability to have the courage to stand up against tyranny. Even when it's uh, uh, almost a lost cause. A lost cause. And in fact, uh, Cicero named his arguments against Mark Antony, who was an ally of Julius Caesar's, uh, as in... Uh, kind of a apprentice to Caesar, if you will, as the Philippics, because just as Demosthenes had argue, get, argued against Philip of Macedon. and his son Alexander, 
who challenged the civic the civic state Athens and was being threatened under tyranny from Philip, so also did Cicero argue that that same condition was coming to bear with Caesar, and then more recently after Caesar's death, the threats of Mark Antony. And he was right. And he was right, yes. And in fact, his work in 46, also in 46 BCE, called De Optima Genera Oratorum, was actually a preface to what was going to be a Latin treatise, a Latin translation of Demosthenes on the crown, the greatest regarded as the greatest oration of the greatest orator who ever existed. Uh, and we had, in fact, we recently published under the edit editorship of James J. Murphy, a revised edition of Demosthenes speech on the crown. And I have a chapter on Demosthenes style and it's, uh, it, it is incredible when you study what Demosthenes did and it was recognized by Cicero, obviously with this work. So we have Cicero's tremendous contributions to rhetoric, not only by instantiating the importance of civic rhetoric as a model of practice in his career as an advocate and as a politician, but we also have his contributions in rhetoric as a rhetorician. And by that we mean a theoretician and or a teacher of rhetoric. And historian of rhetoric, you could say also. I think you should say that. I, I, that's an excellent point. It's a historian of rhetoric that is, uh, that is a tremendous benefit because we can often, and we have, study how Cicero matched or deviated in his practice or performance, if you will, from his theory of rhetoric. And this is a contribution that is very rare. Usually we have either a, a rhetorician, a teacher or theoretician of rhetoric. Quintilian is an example, excellent example who we will be talking about. Or a great orator or literary rhetorician who wrote rhetoric, rhetorical arguments very well. But here we have the whole spectrum with one individual and enough resources to give it the thorough study that it deserves. I mean, you could say here we have a master magician that shows you his cards and that shows yes. you his tricks. And we, and we are fortunate enough to get into the mind of Cicero. We, uh, we can begin to see and all the emotional parts, especially his, his sincere and avid devotion to the idea of republic and free speech and the importance of keeping that environment open so people will be able to contribute toward what is best for their society. And uh, so he's a great, a great model to, for us to remember. And I recently saw a, um, a, a kind of a lecture on Cicero talking, including him among the forgotten thinkers. Um, mm -hmm. And I sort of thought it was so crazy that he could be a forgotten thinker, but we don't, we don't remember what a monumental role he had when there was Latin education. 
um, as a stylist, but also as someone who promoted uh, through his work a kind of democratic ideal that I think uh, from reading you know, both John Adams and a lot of other th- uh, the thinkers of the American Revolution, the French Revolution, um, they really were all trying to model Cicero and Demosthenes. Um, and they read them a lot, and they were huge uh, role models for them. So the, the, the fact that we have a democratic, republican ideal uh, that survives throughout the uh, all these uh, thousand, over, over thousand years of totalitarian or semi-totalitarian states because of the value, because of the style of Cicero, because of the value of his work, because of the way he was even in the Roman Empire um, uh, lauded and seen as one of the greatest writers and speakers ever. I think that that's true. And as we, as we reflect on education in the West, we can begin to get a, a more sensitive picture of what classical education meant early on. And Cicero played, had played an enormous part in that. Now that, um, Ciceronian impact was powerful in the West. I know that up to the 20th century, uh, it held dominance, but it was seen as the mainstay of Western tradition for so long. And then uh, Aristotelian education dominated in the 20th century to the extent that we have somehow forgotten or minimized the contributions that Cicero that Cicero made um, to establish education in the West. Now I think, as you have said, David, that we are beginning to reassess, and if I can use this way, reappreciate, if there's such a word, the contributions that Cicero made. So uh <clears throat> Should we go into a bit more detail on the De Oratore itself and some of the uh, uh, kind of specifics of this uh, of this uh, conversation between uh, Marcus Antonius and uh, Lucinius Crassus? Well, I think one of the most important things to take away from De Oratore is that what what really are the benefits of higher education? What are the benefits of education now? In every country, and certainly this is true in my own country of America, we, we feel that it's important to have great leaders. But right now, we're, if you ask, well, how do we do that? Do we just hope that somehow out of all that we do, someone emerges, someone pops up as a great leader? Do we hope to have maybe another Martin Luther King Jr. or Abraham Lincoln or Winston Churchill in Great Britain, as we alluded to earlier? Or is it possible that we can nurture and facilitate through education the possibilities that such leaders can actually be developed and trained, that we can take, as Socrates used to say, the talent of individuals and through education, give them both the practice and experience that allows them, if the society makes it possible, to perform that leadership. And that really is 
I think, the heart and soul of De Oratori. And this is really, remember, sometimes Cicero is speaking out of the mouth of his character, Marcus Antonius. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, people would say that the views of Lucius Lucinius Crassus, the other major dialogue character in De Oratori, is really Cicero. And because uh, what he is defending is the high style, I would say. He talks about the mixed style, the, 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 the right style for the right occasion, but that there is a place for for the high style, for the for the uh, speech with that is uh, has many flourishes, that is flowery, but that uh, encaps to be able to encapsulate the right kind of moment for the right occasion. Um, yes, I think uh, the, the uh, crude analogy that I would give is if you said if you were building a house, you would want a very large tool chest because there are times you would need a hammer, there are times you would need a saw, there are times you would need a ruler. And if you have all these, you can really help in construction of what you want. There are times, and this is where epideictic rhetoric comes in, where a high floored style is the best style. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, as we mentioned, is a great illustration that the moment was just right for that level of eloquence. It might have been inappropriate at other times, but it was really excellent choice for that occasion. And what Cicero is saying is that we shouldn't dismiss the high style. We should embrace it, but recognize when it would be appropriate to use. But we should train ourselves for all styles. We remember, um, I think he would have argued, and as scholars uh, such as Mira Whitburn and Michael Halloran sh- showed that in medicine, the writing style was up until a few centuries, a few hundred years ago, Ciceronian, where it was, it wasn't the plain, simple, direct style that we so associate with science that we can't think of it in any other way. It's hard for us to imagine a more florid style, but if you go back to some Victorian documents in science, you will see otherwise. And but, the yeah. the what he talks about, I think, is that he says, Lucinius Crassus, is that the um, the height of eloquence is when someone is able to connect uh, an argument in the right kind of moment with a kind of higher philosophic principle or higher moral principle. Um, and he says, so uh, if we want to see what's the best of kind of philosopher and an orator, which which is most useful to the state, he says, the palm must go to the learned orator. So the orator, but that also is also learned in philosophy. And if you then say, well, he's not an orator, he's a philosopher, well, then the contest is over. <laughs> he's essentially been able to unite these two great things. Uh, into yes. the greatest wisdom combined with eloquence. And we have um, even journals today that have been longstanding, such as philosophy and rhetoric, that are devoted to understanding that relationship. We have occasions where Cicero writes that what we can learn, for example, among other things, when, when, rhetor- when people study rhetoric and then study philosophy, 
is to learn ethics, to learn argument in dialectical form, and uh, to just develop their reasoning power, which is a tremendous benefit that comes out of philosophy. So he argues the importance of philosophy and education, not only in day oratory, but we, there is a lost dialogue called the Hortensius, which is an argument of why we should study philosophy. I think he argued that the power of rhetoric was pretty well instantiated, but why should we study philosophy? And it's named after Hortensius, who was a rival advocate, although they became good friends, but was seen as the primary um, opposition in court to Cicero. Uh, Cicero eventually or had defeated Hortensius, and they often later in their careers spoke on the same team of advocates. Right. But in this lost dialogue, what we have are some fragments where Cicero is trying to convince Hortensius of the advantage of not just being the pragmatist that he, Hortensius, is famous for, but why philosophy should be studied by people who study rhetoric. And you would say, like, Martin Luther King, you know, is he a rhetor or an orator, or is he a philosopher, right? Uh, he's someone who's able to, he does uh, not just mention practical policy, but he brings it up to a higher philosophical level, and he's able to do that in a way that doesn't come across as trite or academic, you could say, in that sense, uh, is able to unite wisdom and eloquence, right? Yes, and, uh, I once asked a, a, an artist, fine artist, a painter, I said, is it possible to be a great painter and not be a kind of philosopher? I mean, yes, you can develop the craft skills to paint well, and do, but to really have, to make a creation like, uh, I'll give you an example, Picasso's Guernica, which also makes a rhetorical statement about the horrors of war. Right. Is it possible to be a great painter and not have something of philosophy in you, as Plato once said about Isocrates? And my friend said, you couldn't really be a great painter if you didn't have something of philosophy you had to have a kind of a vision. Mm. You had to have a view that through the medium of art, not of oratory, not with words, but with images, you could create that message. And I thought that was a very important point of view that he made. There is a, uh, a section that is a little bit long, but I'd like to read it where in the oratory where Marcus Antonius extols eloquence. And he says, there is nothing more magnificent than the perfect orator. For to pass over the practical utility of oratory, which reigns supreme in every peaceful and free community, is what he says when when the when nation is free, then oratory is kind of the mainstay of it. The faculty of speaking by itself provides such delight that there is nothing that can give a more pleasant impression either to the human ear or to the human mind. What song can be found that is sweeter than a well-measured speech what poem can be better arranged in the skillfully constructed prose period? What actor in his imitation of real life can be more delightful than an orator actually undertaking a real case? Can anything be more subtle than a string of pointed thoughts? Can anything be more admirable than a subject illuminated by the splendor of words? 
Can anything be richer than a speech that is furnished with every kind of subject matter? For there is no subject, at least among those that must be treated impressively and with distinction, that does not belong to the orator. It is his task to unfold his opinion with dignity when giving advice in affairs of supreme importance. His task, too, is to rouse the people when languishing and to restrain them when impetuous. By this same faculty of speech, deceit is called to destruction and integrity to deliverance. Who can exhort people to virtue more passionately than the orator? Or who can call them back from vice more vigorously? Who can blame the wicked more harshly? Or who can praise the good with more distinction? Who can quell passions more vehemently, uh, more vehemently, vehemently by censure? Who can soothe grief more gently by consolation? As to history, the witness of ages, the illuminator of reality, the life force of memory, the teacher of our lives, and the messenger of times gone by, what other voice but the orators invests it with immortality? I think Cicero, I think that's an excellent passage for our listeners. Cicero strongly believed that rhetoric could help sustain and make the best versions of a society that values free speech possible. He did said, have some concerns that if that was lost, that rhetoric may not be able to recover it. It might need other forces, but certainly the ability to, to use rhetoric would sustain and nurture a free society. And that's what's important uh, for us to recall about the role of rhetoric in education that he expresses in De Oratori. Now, next time when we talk about Quintilian, we'll see who, how Quintilian, who admired Cicero, instantiates a curriculum of education with rhetoric as one of the centerpieces to enact systematically the views that Cicero expressed in works such as De Oratori. Now, perhaps as a kind of uh, fitting uh, conclusion to this, we have talked about Cicero's early life and uh, about his scholarly work and some of his political work, but... uh, you could say his life was lived in climax, right? At the that uh, there's the these powerful families, these powerful patrician families that are wrangling for control of the Roman Republic, and they're tearing the Republic apart into these powerful factions. And arises one Julius Caesar and his, you could say, minions, the ones who want to do the same as him. That does seem to have had the vision of becoming an empire, a sole ruler of Rome, um, and crosses the Rubicon, as you say, um, and decides that this is the now new rule now that Rome is going to become an empire. But it does not die without a fight, and Cicero is one of the instigators, you could say, uh, one of the main people... Uh, cheering on and leading that fight against um, what is the next pretender to the throne, you could say, after Julius Caesar is killed by the by Brutus and the other senators, and that is uh, Marcus Anthony, who Cicero saw as a brute, <laughs> as, as yeah, someone who just a leader of brute force. And he right in that the very uh, dangers that Cicero saw in Julius Caesar were manifested in Mark Antony and that Antony's rise to power 
would uh, would bring to realization all of the fears that he saw in the emergence of Caesar's dynastic rule. Uh, and so Cicero emerged from his, quote, retirement to speak again against the opposition of Mark Antony in what he called his Philippics, which is a torrid, vehement argument against everything that Mark Antony stood for. His character, uh, his dictatorial tendencies, his the tyrant. Yes. And uh, this puts this, this puts Cicero on the prescription list, which was a list of influential Romans who uh, to needed die. to be removed. And and uh, the new triumvirate, the the one that uh, now came to power after Julius Caesar, of Octavius, who later became Augustus, and Lepidus. Uh, Yes, Lepidus and then Mark Antony uh, were taking care of enemies. Now, Octavius had tremendous admiration for Cicero and fought to keep him off the prescription list. But eventually... Mark Antony, I guess, would not... No. And Cicero was assassinated. Staying alive. Yes. And um, on December 7th of, uh, I believe, 43 BCE. But his legacy lived on. In fact, his courage of putting himself into a position where it would eventually cost him his life has been recognized by society. Cicero was never a great soldier. He would be the first to tell you that and and probably was even squeamish in the horrors of, of war. But uh ultimately his his courage in putting his own life on the line for what he believed in rhetorically and philosophically gives testimony to i think a courage that is evident even if it's not on the battlefield and so it becomes a you could say a martyr to the the spirit of the republic and somewhat democracy Yes, I think so. And I think that's how we should remember Cicero. We should remember him who, uh, who, who backed up his own beliefs at a tremendous personal risk and he knew what it would cost him. Yeah, and I think so, because you see in a lot of his work really kind of almost a foreshadowing of his death, where he... For one thing, his uh, identifying himself with Demosthenes, who also was killed in the end by the uh, those who were just tired of his meddlings of trying to bring back democracy after it was lost in Athens, and before that, trying to uh, remind the people why they should fear and resist a tyrant. And, yes. Uh, and I, he, I'm uh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. You can you can say what you want to say. Well, I think that as you, well, I'm just supporting your views that they both became symbols. They became symbols of champions of free societies and the importance of leaders. And also that those leaders have the capacity to be eloquent in, in, at different times and for uh, the important reasons of free speech. 
and yeah. they both made the ultimate commitment to show their belief in that view. And at the, uh, not the Constitutional Convention, but the what was in the Philadelphia, the Continental Congress, there we go. At mm-hmm. the Continental Congress, uh, John Adams and many of the other uh, founding fathers directly cite and invoke Demosthenes and Cicero. Yes, they do. They were products of classical education. As young children, they read these orations, such as the ones that you cited in the beginning, and they saw those as the principles that found at their political point of view. I think this would be a good point time to bring out the uh, the dream of Scipio. This is kind of the coda or the end of uh, Plato's, or not Plato's, but uh, Cicero's The Republic, where he argues for a combination of oligarchy, um, which we had with the Supreme Court, I would say, in America, um, uh, the king, which we have in the executive, and the um, the populace of democracy, which you have in the House of Representatives, for example, uh, and the election process. Um, and at the end, he brings this dream of Scipio where he's dreaming and is visited in his dream by uh, one of his ancestors who was uh, one of the heroes of the Roman Republic. And his ancestor warns him that um, he may be up for the sword himself in his defense of, of Rome, um, but that he shouldn't worry too much about that, that he should do his duty and not, um, uh, and not uh, stay away from it because there are so many things greater than the preservation of life. And he does that by giving him a lesson in astronomy and talks about kind of these eternal bodies and also eternal principles. Um, and he says that if therefore you wish to look higher and to gaze upon this eternal home and habitation, you will not put yourself at the mercy of the masses' gossip or nor measure your long-term destiny by the rewards you get from men. Goodness herself must draw you on by her own enticements to true glory. As for what others say about you, that's their concern. They'll say it anyhow. All that is said is confined within those small areas that you, that you see. In no case does a person's reputation last forever. It fades with the death of the speakers and vanishes as posterity forgets. Yet to make you all the keener to defend the state, Africanus, I want you to know this. For everyone who has saved and served his country and helped it to grow, a sure place is set aside in heaven where he may enjoy a life of eternal bliss. To that supreme God who rules the universe, nothing, or at least nothing that happens on earth, is more welcome than those companies and communities of people linked together by justice that are called states. Their rulers and saviors are set out from this place, heaven, and to this they return. I think that Cicero believed as... uh, even in the novel by Robert Harris, Dictator, when he talks about this dream that Cicero had, that he says it very well. He says, when Cicero was transported in this dream up to the stars, he looks, he not only gets a perspective on this ultimate glory and enduring glory of celestial life, but he can look down at the petty and trivial views and shortcomings of people on earth and get a perspective 
that is hard to have when you're in the middle of it and the enduring qualities. And I think that was very well captured by what he wrote and, of course, by what you just read to us. And, of course, though he says that everyone's reputation fades, his has remained. Um, it remained. Though, yeah, and, I uh, think uh, when we think back to what Aristotle said in his rhetoric, uh, he said that truth and, you know, and value, those things, have an enduring quality. They tend to last. They tend to be perpetuated and to be realized as superior to falsehood. And I think that uh, he touched on something that in a certain respect hits on this point, and that is that peop- it's Cicero's merits and those views are perpetuated because people recognize their enduring value across time and across cultures. And uh, to give kind of like an after story of this and a bridge to Quintilian, uh, we have uh, uh, the fall of the Roman Republic. Speech is no longer free. And we have the atrocities of Caligula and uh, Nero, even though they like the kind of the performative rhetoric, they don't, Mm -hmm. uh, they put to death people that speak up against them. Um, And uh, that freedom of speech that they had before is no longer there. And Quintilian, he distills the knowledge and the learning of of, uh, Cicero and, and of Isocrates and Aristotle into a complete educational program for what you'd say Roman bureaucrats, military leaders, uh, people that would lead the state, even as it is a nominally a dictatorship. Um, and you have one of his students, Tacitus, the silent one, as he call him, calls himself, <laughs> uh, writing, we believe at least, this um, dialogue on oratory, where yeah. they are discussing why has oratory diminished? Why is it no longer have the force, the power, the eloquence that they had in Athens or that they had when Roman Rome was a republic? And there are a lot of different ideas and a lot of different theories that they throw around. Perhaps it was the education. Perhaps it was that, well, it's just a different kind of rhetoric now, but it's just as good. To the final speaker that kind of gives the answer and says, it's because we don't have freedom anymore. And we don't have a society where speech matters where what is said matters. And so it all becomes performative. And I have given it up and have retreated into poetry. I think Tacitus, and I believe he uses these words in his dialogue, um, says that our speakers today are competent. They're competent. They're good. But true eloquence is not evident today. He's talking about this. And then he argues why that is the case. And as you pointed out so well, that the environment to permit this to emerge, to blossom, to be nourished, um, is not the same in his own society as once was when Rome was a republic. And um, that eloquence that they look back at I think that lost eloquence that they forever look back at through all the years of a lack of democracy and lack of freedom, they look back to Cicero and Demosthenes. 
I think they do. They are the, our touchstones to remind us, as you said earlier. How a free of, man speaks. Of how, how, of what we ought to do and what we're capable of doing. And to, uh, sometimes we ask ourselves, maybe this is the best way to put it. And this isn't my idea. It's been done by many others to say, what would I do? Or, or in this case, what would I say if I wasn't afraid? If I wasn't afraid of the consequences, what would I say or what would I do? And I think uh, that helps explain Demosthenes and Cicero that, you know, they, I'm sure they, if they're human, they were afraid, but they spoke as if they weren't and, uh, and were the better for it. Is that what the, um, Greeks would have called parhesia? Perhaps. I, th I haven't thought about it as much as I know I should have, but I feel that that idea captures right now the... The freedom the to speak of yeah, the courage to speak. Yeah. Yes, uh, their abilities and their contributions. So I think you may well be right on the point there. Right. But, but now we'll see the flowering of all this when we move to Quintilian and how these great ideas are instantiated into what Romans would call a ratio, a systematic form of education. You know, one of the things that we admire about Romans is that for, for all their strengths and faults, they were organized. They were, they were, uh, they had a system for almost everything And they and Quintilian presents his ratio for the importance of rhetoric within higher education, and it becomes a standard, right? That uh, remains in higher yes. education, at least for the elites or at least the learned classes throughout medieval Europe um, and into the modern universities. And we will see that. If you were to do a tour of America today, if our listeners were, they would see that there are schools that take pride in calling themselves a classical school. We have the classical and education. Classical education, a very famous university, University of Chicago, had a system where their college students read the great works. Read the great works. And... Uh, because the values that come across from those philosophically, rhetorically, uh, are a benefit today as they were in antiquity. Thank you for uh, sharing that about uh, on Cicero and uh, for everyone listening. The uh, next one on Quintilian, uh, also an amazing, amazing pe pe person, um, perhaps the greatest educator after Isocrates, would you say? Yes, and I think one of the things that I hope we can start off with is that although some of his uh, his major works were lost for a period of time in the Middle Ages, the great account of their rediscovery is exuberant because they had enough fragments of Quintilians through the Middle Ages to realize what they had lost and why that work instantiated the education that they now had. But we'll talk about the particulars of what Quintilian did in 
his impact when we have our next discussion. All right. Well, I'll uh, just uh, end with the end of the Catiline oration on uh, the first Catiline oration where he's been talking about that uh, Catiline, you, uh, Catalina, you should leave as well as uh, the band of people that are following you. To the great safety of the Republic, to your own misfortune and injury, and to the destruction of those who have joined themselves to you in every wickedness and atrocity, then do you, O Jupiter, who are consecrated by Romulus with the same auspices as this city, whom we rightly call the stay of this city and empire, repel this man and his companions from your altars and from the other temples, from the houses and the walls of the city, from the lives and fortunes of all the citizens and overwhelm all the enemies of good men. The foes of the Republic, the robbers of Italy, men bound together by a treaty and infamous alliance of crimes dead and alive with eternal punishments. <laughs>